Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the biggest stories in European football. I'm Andy Brassel. I'm Nikki Bandini. And I'm Jonathan Johnson. On this edition, you may notice that there's no Dotnada bio off on holiday this week, but the Champions League group stage wrapped up this week as well, so early that it was still sunny in Marseille. No idea if Dotton's there or not. It's been an intense period, so we look back on who got what, particularly taking a close view of Milan as they reacquaint themselves properly with a competition that is such a part of their illustrious history. Talking of Marseille, we'll review the thrills and spills of the final night of Group D, the group that simply wouldn't die. We'll also check in on how Paris Saint-Germain's big three are getting ready for the World Cup and what might be the consequences of two of them returning back from Doha with rather less than they hoped for in their luggage. Welcome, Nicky. Welcome, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan, what an absolute treat to have you on today. So I'm going to start with you. What's the one thing that caught your eye this week, other than the stuff that we're going to talk about in the next 45 minutes or so? Uh, first of all, absolutely delighted. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, the thing that caught my eye, I mean, dif- difficult to ignore it, given that I cover PSG so closely, but PSG doing the most PSG thing possible, and that was managing to miss out on top spot in their Champions League group via a very obscure away goals rule. But actually, the, the <laughs> thing that really caught my eye about it more than anything is that it really underlines how Benfica are kind of the leading power for Portuguese football 
in the Champions League at this moment in time. Porto obviously there up there as well. And it's kind of a question to you, Andy. Who is the dominant force in Portuguese football at the moment? Because Benfica haven't actually won the domestic title since 2019, yet they're arguably the stronger performer in the Champions League of late. But Porto, you can never rule them out. You know, you always know that they're a team that you can rely on to do well and go fairly far in uh, in tournaments. So I'm putting the question to you, especially after Sporting started their group so well and then really dropped off and were lucky to get the Europa League spot. You know, who is the the strongest? Portuguese club at this moment in time. Well, the presenter is getting presented there. I wasn't expecting this on the, on the, <laughs> on the first question. It's, it's a really interesting question, actually, JJ, because I, I just think Benfica are just so generally irresistible at the moment. You know, you've got 23 matches unbeaten now. Um, the sort of run under Roger Schmidt that, that, that I haven't seen anything of um, since the Sven Joran Eriksson days, really. And, and the football is, is so seductive. As though mounting up those goals in Haifa to take advantage of that rule that you were talking about. It, it reminded me a bit of that Dinamo Zagreb Leon game from uh, the Champions League going back all, all, all those years where there was just this 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 flurry of goals but I, I think uh, it, it's easy to think it is Benfica at the moment especially as they got themselves into the quarterfinals of of, of last year's Champions League which as soon as Jorge Jesus went out the door, they seemed to grow a little bit in the in in the in the Champions League. So that's that's great for them. I think you have to look at Porto under Sergio Conceição, who I think all but one time have reached the last sixteen of the Champions League. Which I think, when you look at the financial disparities, is is, is pretty incredible at the moment. So great for both of them. Anyway, Nikki, I know that your thing that you wanted to point out this week was also a Champions League-related one. Well, kind of loosely, right? Well, same game, actually, I suppose, because it was um, Federico Chiesa coming off the bench for Juventus against PSG, obviously mm. in a losing effort. Um, I, I have such mixed up feelings about it because obviously as an Italian, it's sort of an extra reminder, oh, we're not going to the World Cup and this isn't <laughs> a perfectly timed return for the World Cup. But Chiesa's one of those players that even though he's now 25 and he's not even as young as I think he is, he's 25 years old, uh, he's got that that big kid energy about him. There's something about him running out and playing football. I see it in Victor Osman as well. Like There's certain players who just give you that vibe of like, oh, this guy is just the kid in the playground chasing a ball and, and loving it. And so seeing him get to do that, throw himself right in there, I mean, he was... He had a shot in his 15 minutes on the pitch. He was, he was right into it. He was asking for a penalty and... Yeah, it was it was really fun to see him back out there and and doing what he does well. It was it was a thrill. At the risk of like really turning this section into something <laughs> much longer than it should be. <laughs> I, I've been I've been watching Juve a couple of times this season. I saw them up close in Paris as well. Nikki, where where do Juve genuinely go from here? Because it feels like since the very beginning of the group stage, Allegri was talking about uh, our season's going to begin uh, basically during the World Cup break. And surely that is not good enough based on, you know, what we've just seen, uh, you know, from Juve, this Champions League group stage. Fortunate, really, in many ways to even drop into the Europa League. It's surely that's not considered good enough for a club of Juve's stature. No, it's it's definitely not. I think I probably can't give the full answer to that question, otherwise Andy might kill me for going on uh, too, too long, because it it's an involved question where they go from here. Um, the short answer is they failed all of their objectives really for this first part of the season the biggest one was to get through the Champions League group stage the fact they got through to the Europa League with three points is extraordinary I mean frankly of all the ways to get into the Europa League literally with one win and nothing else in the whole group um 
but Juventus don't traditionally change managers during a season. I expect he'll still be there now um, come the 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 post-World Cup period. And then the, I think the goal for the second half of the season will be getting the top four because I think the title is already beyond the... Well, it's time to turn that frown upside down, Nikki. We're going to go from uh, zeros to heroes and talk about Milan making it into the last 16 with that emphatic victory over Salzburg on match day six. Um, they only needed a point to get through at San Siro, but I think there was a sense beforehand that it, it would be a challenge for them. Uh, Salzburg are a team that have, have looked good in the Champions League over the last couple of years, but Olivier Giroud just took over and led the way uh, on an exciting night at San Siro where the players seemed really hyped for it. Um, what have they got right in the Champions League this year, Nicky? Because they played some pretty good games in a very challenging group last last season. They finished bottom of the group, which kind of felt like an experience thing to me. Have they just learned a lot more? Because the performances haven't always been amazing, but they did get there in the end or is the group simply weaker than the one they faced last season yeah I think that's a really important question it's certainly a weaker group right isn't it it's not got Liverpool Atletico Madrid and Porto in it it's it's not as good a group Um, and I think it's sort of to a certain extent it's easy to shrug and go oh well when you looked at this group at the beginning of the group stage who did you expect to go through Chelsea and Milan that's what I think almost everyone looking at that group expected so in, in in many senses no great turn-ups and, and Milan did lose both games to Chelsea, which isn't great. On the other hand, I, I sort of feel like I need to keep repeating this point at the moment, which is this is not Milan of the mid-2000s. This is a Milan team that hadn't been in the Champions League for the best part of a decade, that last season was, I think, the second youngest team in the competition and had a lot of players who hadn't played in the competition in their entire careers um, and who actually having had that back-to-back difficult bit in the middle against Chelsea, they didn't just scrape through. They won the next two games 4-0. Like, you can't ask mm. for much more than that from a position of, OK, you still control your destiny. How are you going to do it? Beat them both 4-0. Chelsea didn't beat Salzburg 4-0. This is not... And and Salzburg has something to play for at the end of the group as well, so it wasn't a dead rubber. Um, they've done what they could in that situation. Now, I don't know. I, I sort of... I'm trying to to find the right sort of way of explaining it to people because I think there's there's a middle point between these two expectations. Like, are we expecting Milan to be back to being this Milan team who are historically one of the most successful clubs in European history, in Champions League history? There's basically Madrid ahead of them and that's it. Um, no, no one's expecting that in Milan yet. It's it's a process and it's it's one step at a time. But can you say this club is continuing to move in the right trajectory? Yes, clearly. Pioli said the the sort of European ambition this season was to get through the group stage between the beginning of the season and the World Cup and then reassess after that. Well, they got through the group stage and they did it, I think, in the end, quite comfortably. And funnily enough, they're up against a Salzburg team that I think was maybe like the second youngest ever in the Champions League, a really young team. So mm. they were up against an even younger team. And I think if you want to buy into the manager's own rhetoric, Pioli has been saying for a while, stop calling us a young team. We're not a young team anymore. We're a team that's that's trying to mature and go place. And he doesn't want to live with that label. And I think this was the step towards maturity, right? Okay, if you're going to be a serious team, you're no longer expecting just to participate. You're expecting to go somewhere. And, and I think it's a first step. It's not everything, but they cleared their first step. 
And talking of Pioli, of course, a real endorsement of his work this week as he was given an extended contract to 2025. JJ, I don't want to franker frame all of your questions, um, but I've got to ask about Olivier Giroud here because there's been a discussion in France, which a lot of people outside France might not be particularly aware of, of whether he should be taken to the World Cup. You know, there was even a discussion on whether France's last game against Denmark would be his last game for the French national team because it doesn't seem like Didier Deschamps is completely sold on the idea of him being a substitute after he was deposed from the first 11 by Karim Benzema. I mean, a lot of people from the outside will say this is another endorsement of why Giroud has to go. He's absolutely thriving for, for Milan this season. What's the view inside France of his performances for Milan? And what's your view on whether he goes to the World Cup? Does he have to go? I mean, obviously, people in France will keep an eye on what Giroud is doing, playing for such a prestigious club as, uh, as Milan. Um, you know, and he's still performing very well, you know, despite, uh, you know, getting on in years. And I actually think the, the recent developments with Le Bleu uh, are kind of playing into Giroud's hands now. Because not only are players, certain players such as Benzema, sort of struggling with little niggly injuries, you've also got the likes of Paul Pogba, Engoro Conte, um, you know, completely ruled out. Mike Mignon, his Milan teammate, sounds like he's probably not going to make it. Unfortunately, Rafael Varane, another really questionable one as well. And suddenly, if you take Giroud out of that mix, you know, where is the experience in that uh, mm. in that French squad? I mean, yes, we know that they're absolutely stacked for talents and there's so much potential there, but you do need some of those experienced heads. And you were mentioning the final fixtures that France played before the World Cup. Uh, you know, Giroud and, and Griezmann between them, I think, were the only two, uh, you know, who have upwards of 100 caps. So for me, I think that Giroud has to go. Yes, he'll go as a squad option because if fit, Benzema, uh, you know, will be paired with Mbappe up front. But... Uh, you know, I do think that Giroud, you know, still has something to offer this national team. The, the thing with Giroud at Milan, and I think it's a fascinating um, sort of parallel for Milan because you can draw this parallel with people in Zaghi, right? Like when Milan won the Champions League in 2007, they had on paper a worse team than in 2005. And especially you'd say you instead of having Shevchenko at his prime, you had Inzaghi in his mid-30s. And um, I'm certainly not suggesting Milan are about to go and win the Champions League, by the way, but just to clarify that, but I think Giroud has, <laughs> has got something right now of that inzaginess about him. He's the player who, yes, he's in the latter part of his career. Yes, he's not as quick as some of the players around him, but he knows where to be in all the important moments. He keeps showing up in all the important moments in the right places. And yeah, his goals are big goals, aren't they? Right, that was certainly a symbolism that was picked up again um, after this latest win in, in Italy and in Milan. Look, last season, he was the player who scored twice turn around the derby. He scored in a win over Napoli. He scored away to Lazio. He scored on the last day of the season. And he broke the famous curse of the number nine shirt at Milan. No one since Inzaghi had scored double figures wearing number nine until Giroud came along. So I think in terms of being a player who is he as good as Benzema? No, of course he isn't at this point in his career. I mean, maybe he never has been really. But. Is he someone who I would like to have in my team in case I need a big goal at a big moment? God, I'd, I'd take him for certain. So what's his leadership role been this season? Because no Zlatan, we saw him bear-like in his huge leather jacket on the, on the touchline yesterday at, at San Siro. Um, so clearly he's going to come back and he's, he's going to be influential, at least off the pitch. What has Giroud done inside that changing room 
over the, the the last six months, and particularly when we look at Milan in a Champions League context, you talked about them recovering pretty convincingly from that double disappointment against Chelsea. What role do you think he as a senior player had in that? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think Ibrahimovic, like when he ever since he returned to Milan, everyone, every younger player would talk about how hands on he was, how he would talk to them in like sort of. Um, specifics I think about like things that he thought they should do and I don't get the impression that Giroud has been quite as sort of hands-on as that perhaps in some ways in terms of his relationship with players but the the phrase that was sort of uh, thrown around last season talking about him was like a big brother and I think he's sort of been that to this Milan team quite a lot he's been this figure of sort of older calm almost because you have got Mm. so many young players in that group you have got players who are um coming up and and Giroud is just sort of the the old head who in the big moments is going to sort of lead the way by not losing his head not being I suppose in some ways you could sort of draw this contrast with um the other sort of prominent forward in that Milan team the best player in that Milan team Rafael Leal Leal is a brilliant footballer has the potential to be something really really special but there's always this sort of air of chaos about him the way he runs with the ball even looks chaotic he's got this <laughs> this energy that's a bit all over the place and Giroud's the antithesis of that he's the the calm he's the cool he's the you know I I'm a bit obsessed with his assist last night for for Kroenich's goal because it was just such a like thoughtful header like to to, to not look for goal himself there to to not only be able to make that header but to 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 think to make that header um was something that I think not many number nines would do and yeah I think he's his role has been leading by example more than Zlatan I think Zlatan sure he scores goals and leads by example as well when he's been there but Zlatan has been very sort of communicative whereas I think Giroud I'm sure he talks I don't think he's I don't mean to say he's a mute but I think his role has been more of a, yeah, showing showing the way rather than explaining it. We touched on Rafael Leao there. That that left side with Rafael Leao, JJ and Teo Hernandez, who is another real leader of that team, Teo. He's, he's been absolutely fantastic for them. Um, I, I mean, th- th- you do have a lot of players, I think, in this Milan team. Going back to the point that Nicky was talking about with Pioli, who are, I think, mature beyond their years and do have those kind of leadership roles JJ how do you rate their chances in the last 16 oh funnily enough just to finish touching on that leadership before looking ahead to the round of 16 uh sort of following on from what Nikki was saying uh I think as well there have been circumstances that have really required this Milan side to be you know sort of wiser than their years because you've got leaders you know guys not just like Zlatan but also Simon Kjaer uh who I spoke to last year was talking about the importance of having that first experience back in the Champions League and then trying to build on it in the following years. But then to take two really, really strong leadership figures out of that, not only you know does the, the Milan squad then naturally have to kind of gravitate towards Giroud because of his superior experience within that uh, squad. You know, his selflessness as well, I think is probably quite important for a lot of his Milan teammates to learn from. And it just, it feels like there is going to come a a point where some of the older heads in the dressing room eventually get moved on as these younger players, uh, you know, come of maturity, come of age, uh, you know, and can actually take Milan to, to the level that they're aspiring to get to. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to predict going into the round of 16 draw, you know, what the fate, what the matchup is going to be like for Milan at this stage. We don't know what the outcome of the World Cup is going to be. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think that they are, 
not a team that many clubs are going to really want to to come up against because of that quality that, that you've mentioned you know having guys like Leal who you know really on any given day can really turn it on and, and, and be one of the best players uh, in Europe so I think that Milan are a team that nobody is really going to want to fall on in this next round so as JJ was saying um prediction for the last 16 obviously it's draw conditional but prediction for the last 16 how far do you see them getting Nicky briefly it's it's so hard to answer that without knowing the draw because if they draw Real Madrid they'll probably go out right like they're probably not mm. going to beat some of these teams with the right draw I think they can get to the quarterfinal with the wrong draw that could be the end of the road um but yeah it's it's just too hard to know right now Okay, well, listeners, as you've only got 280 characters to do it, you can be a lot more definitive and no one will remember if you get it wrong anyway. A reminder here that you can tweet us always at Football Ramble, at Andy Brassel, at Nicky Bandini and at John underscore Legossip. Uh, We've got one from at The Bridge on Twitter and we've got to get in a bit of love for Napoli. So this is very well-timed ATB. Uh, What are the chances of Napoli being able to develop this incredible side into a long-term project and not be broken up and sold next summer. Well, they already went through the being broken up and being sold bit, didn't they, Nikki? Yeah, what's the chances they won't sell someone? Probably nil. Um, Aurelio Di Laurentiis is... He's not someone who sells players for cheap. He tends to dig his heels in and get the, extract the right value for players. But he's he is someone who's pretty much always run Napoli about as sensibly from a business standpoint as anyone in all of Serie A. He's always managed to turn, if not profits, at least not major losses, which is something that a lot of his rivals have just continued year on year to lose a lot of money. So if someone comes in with 200 million euros for Victor Osman, I'm sure less than that, actually. I think the release cost is less than that. Victor Osman will go if if he wants to. Um, But I don't think it's going to be an instant dismantling either. I think... um, as I said, De Laurentiis is someone who doesn't let his prizes go for cheap and who will try to keep a competitive team on the pitch. And at the moment, certainly with Cristiano Giuntoli and the signings he made this summer, you have to put some faith in them to continue replacing with with more good signings. You wonder as well if, uh, you know, Napoli have kind of learned from the overhaul that was basically forced upon them uh, last summer. You know, they kind of waited too long to cash in on some of their strongest assets uh, and you wonder if they've kind of learned from that and maybe there will be greater consideration in the future to maybe uh, you know cash in on one or two of them when you know their value is highest I mean you can probably imagine quite a few big European names uh, you know at least inquiring about the likes of uh, the Georgian Maradona so much easier to pronounce them <laughs> well either that or feature but uh, you know you can imagine that there will be inquiries about Aussie men about uh, about creature uh, you know, next uh, next summer, if you know they continue along this uh, this current trajectory, but it would it would be nice to see Napoli be able to keep this core of, uh, of of the team together. The one player that I was surprised that they, I mean, I don't really want to say jettisoned because it's not like he's you know past his best, but I was surprised that Napoli let go of. who's really impressed me since joining PSG. Was Fabian Ruiz? I was wondering if Nicky might be able to shed some light on sort of why. Why that move was a, was allowed to happen? Because you know PSG fans have been crying out for the heir apparent to Thiago Motta for some time, and suddenly they they seem to have it in Fabio Ruiz. It seems like a really good fit. Renato Sanchez not so much, but Ruiz very impressive, and he's somebody who always caught my eye when I've seen PSG up against Napoli in uh, in previous years. Yeah, absolutely. I think Fabian Ruiz is one of the players I was looking at and thinking. Um, 
when I was in the summer and I, like many people thought Napoli were going backwards, <laughs> um, like many of their fans thought they were going backwards, this was real point of contention. Spalletti was heckled at pre-season events because people were so convinced the team was being dismantled and um, Ruiz was someone who they thought very highly of, a lot of fans, and all I can say is bluntly they haven't missed him at all. The midfielders look like something different, um, but that trio of Lobotka, Zielinski and Danguisa has been perfection, so I guess the answer lies in a combination of certainly some extent of financial need and, and wanting to make sure there's some money coming in because they did spend a fair bit this summer but clearly between them at the, the directors of the club and the manager felt like they could make a midfield without him Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And now we get onto the group to end them all. Or was it, I suppose? It just felt like a great group because um, it never really went right for anyone. Nothing happened that you would expect. It was the group that wouldn't die. Of Tottenham and Eintracht Frankfurt, the two who went through in the end, Sporting, who, as JJ said in the intro, scraped into the Europa League place at the expense of Marseille, who let that third place go with the last kick, the very last kick of the entire group. Actually, on that dramatic night of Tuesday, and I was out in Marseille for the game against Tottenham, the group leadership changed seven times on that night. And for a while there, before we get... To, let's just quickly recap what, what happened on the night, JJ, because at one point, it looked like one of those 
nights at the velodrome. I mean, I got to the stadium about three and a half hours before kickoff. The streets were absolutely packed like it was a super classico. Lots of fireworks, people going crazy. And then, even though you only had three of the four stands of the velodrome open, part of that being the, the hangover from the incidents against uh, Eintracht Frankfurt in the first home group game, there was that incredible velodrome atmosphere. And Spurs really shrunk in it in that opening 45 minutes. It looked like Marseille were going to do it for a while, didn't it? Yeah, they did. And, uh, you know, I think there is a strong argument to say at the end of the day, Marseille beat themselves as opposed to Spurs beating them. Because, you know, having watched it, it really wasn't the most impressive Spurs performance. And I know that we've said that a lot about Spurs over the course of this season so far. But, you know, there, there is this worrying trend now with Marseille you know, where they really struggle uh, at this level. We all know their glorious history. We all know what the Velodrome is capable of producing in terms of atmosphere on these big European nights. But the fact is that, you know, the the team, more often than not, are just not at the same height as, the you know, their supporters. It, it is really, really frustrating from a French point of view to look at that situation and that Marseille have dropped out of Europe completely, not just dropped into the Europa League and out of the Champions League. Uh, you know, it, it kind of feels like a, a bit of an exaggerated scenario because to see them claw themselves back into this group by beating Sporting back-to-back, then just to throw it away at the very last minute, not just conceding that, that Hoybio goal, but, you know, the miss from Kalazanac as well, uh, you know, and the fact that Loris, you know, performed incredibly well, mm. uh, you know, over the course of 90 minutes. It just, I, I don't know, it, it really, it feels, you know, like this Marseille side, even when they put themselves in an advantageous position, they just can't ever, uh, you know, capitalise on that. And it is, a, you know, a great source of frustration, uh, you know, both on, on the part of the Marseille fans, but also French football fans as a whole, because, you know, this exit, I mean, we mentioned the Portuguese clubs off the bat at the top of the show. You know, this could have potential coefficient ramifications yeah. in a really important period for France. You know, you've got sort of France, Netherlands, Portugal jostling for this position to be part of that top five ahead of the Champions League reforms. And this kind of performance really, really sets French football back because if Marseille can't be competing at the Champions League, which, you know, their history suggests definitely is their level. Uh, you know, they should at least be getting into the Europa League. And it feels really, it's a, it's a bitter taste in the mouth, as you can tell. Uh, you know, that Sporting, you know, managed to just scrape in despite, you know, their form having dropped off of a cliff after the first two games of the group stage. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, really, because I think everyone will have those, well, everyone, that they and Sporting will both have those regrets because Sporting managed to shoot themselves in the foot in both of those games against Marseille, finished the first one with 10, second one with, with nine players. Um, it meant they had to take the very influential Marcus Edwards off very early in those games to replace him with A, a goalkeeper, and, and, and B, a centre-back. Um, Sporting are very, very sore about the equalising Eintracht Frankfurt penalty, which was litigious to say the very least. Um, and something that probably shouldn't happen in the in, in the VAR era. Um, but before we get onto Spurs, Nicky, I, I, and I think we do from an Antonio Conte pers- perspective, I really want to pick your brains a little on this. I think it's worth reiterating, going back to what you were saying, JJ, about um, what Marseille needed to do to get it over the line in terms of Europa League qualification. I mean, Matteo Genduzzi, who I know you're a big fan of, Nicky, really... Um, criticised his team for being unprofessional afterwards and said, um, really, when Kolasinac missed that chance, we should have held on to the draw. 
And it was extraordinary hearing Igor Tudor saying it was difficult to get the message across because it was so noisy in there. Some of the players saying, yes, we knew a draw would have got us Europa League. And some other players saying, we didn't know. So it was all like totally chaotic. But, you know, we, we think of Antonio Conte, Nicky, as the opposite of that, as control over chaos. But surely that first half can't have been a plan to, to play like that. Where do you see Conte's Spurs being at the moment? And how big a deal is it for him and the overall view of him for Spurs to go deep into the Champions League? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, just to say on Tudor as well, I mean, Tudor's not reputed certainly in Italy as an agent of chaos. He's, he's quite an orderly person. That was what allowed him to succeed right. in, in his sort of early steps as a manager. And, and I think there's something even in there, isn't there, about identities of clubs. I've, I've talked about it on, on the podcast before, um, how Conte, when he arrived at Inter, his whole mission statement was no more Pazza Inter, no more crazy Inter. I want us to be regular and strong. And is Tudor perhaps being swept up in the craziness of Marseille? And <laughs> and, uh, and and certainly that has seemed like a, a pretty chaotic atmosphere around the team um, lately. Um, and not even that lately, to be honest. But um, look, Conte has for a while, certainly initially, held this reputation as being a bit of a flop in Europe. And it goes back to being Juventus and the infamous game against Galatasaray in the snow. But that group oh, yes. stage where I think they only won one game and it was against Copenhagen. Um, the, he disappointed in the Champions League. Then they went dropped into the Europa League that season and they were like, OK, we'll win the Europa League, which was being played in Turin. And then they lost in a semi-final there as well, didn't get to play their home final. Then he goes to to Inter and doesn't get them out of the group stage. He goes to Chelsea and disappoints there as well. So he has a real reputation of not living up to expectations in Europe. And I think the way that the night started, there were a lot of people on the Italian side of things looking, oh, here we go again. What's interesting is, um, to some extent, it feels like Conte is Conte in reverse at the moment because part of the criticism that followed him around through all these European misadventures was that he didn't have a plan B and that's not meant in a greater sense because of course when Conte came to Juventus he'd come from playing 4-2-4 and he said he was going to impose a 4-2-4 and he got there and said actually this doesn't work in Serie A and with the players I've got and reinvented it to a 3-5-2 and and that famously was very successful in domestic terms so he's not seen as someone who's never innovated but within the micro context of games within the micro context of specific situations he was basically accused of being too predictable in Europe of always coming with with one plan and not knowing how to fix it weirdly Tottenham have been exactly the opposite of that haven't they they can't seem to start a game correctly but every game they manage to find a way of fixing it so I don't know what to think about this um this season's Conte this season's Tottenham they're a very strange team because results are good but I think most close observers of them feel like they're not playing that well um and and that is um that I suppose in one way is quite classically Conte you know his 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 inter team even that won the league wasn't always perceived as playing brilliantly but they won and won and won but the way it keeps happening with Tottenham falling behind and then waking up in the second half I I haven't got a better explanation for it than anyone else I don't think I mean that that thing of finishing strongly that that feels to me very Juventus. Fino alla fine is a is is a is the sorry is the the, the the Juventus hashtag, which is just literally mm. until the end, and that is a mantra that you hear a lot at the club, and certainly 
was sort of re-began in this era uh, in their sort of decade-long success recent era began re-began with Conte for certain yeah and I, I guess like when when we look at Antonio Conte in a European perspective JJ how much do you think he he needs this because it is the one thing missing, like Nicky was saying. He's, he's seen as a as a flop in a Champions League context. I mean, he's seen almost not. I don't. I don't think anyone expects him to win the Premier League with with Tottenham. But he's raised expectations significantly. It feels like they can become a regular Champions League club, which for them and their stadium is obviously the the next step. But in terms of our view of him as a coach, as non Italians, how much do you think it? it matters for, for him to go deep into this competition? I think it matters hugely. And the other thing you have to consider with him being a Spurs as well is, you know, Spurs are not exactly a team that doesn't have any Champions League history now. You have Pochettino who took them to the finals. You could even argue that, you know, expectations at that level are already a bit higher than, you know, you might expect, uh, you know, of a club, uh, you know, like Spurs who only returned to the Champions League sort of, you know, in more recent years. So, I mean, I think for, for Conte, he almost walked into, you know, perhaps a, a bigger challenge than he realised, uh, you know, with a Spurs team in the Champions League, you know, fighting against teams who, you know, at the end of the day will probably always be better um, stocked in terms of the, the talent necessary to, to compete with the likes of a Manchester City at the top of the Premier League and a Liverpool, which, you know, let's face it, you know, the two real dominant teams to beat, uh, you know, if you're a Spurs looking uh, for league success. So, yeah, I mean, what does success look like for, for, for Spurs under Conte? It would have to be regular Champions League qualification, getting to, uh, you know, the, the knockout phases, probably quarterfinals, semifinals, uh, you know, and picking up domestic silverware. I think that really is sort of, you know, how Conte could shape his legacy, you know, further for, for, for people like us. Uh, you know, non-Italians viewing him sort of from the outside looking in. Obviously, he's got that success in the Premier League with Chelsea in the past, but so many of his successes, even into Milan right now, they feel quite far behind us in the past. And it's funny, sort of, having done all of this chat about Marseille and the, the atmosphere in and around the club, it's kind of the guy who might be well suited to a posting there at some point in his future. I can see him really thriving on the chaos of that uh, sideline uh, amidst a writhing velodrome. Not quite in the same way that Marcelo Bielsa was a great fit for Marseille, but but similarly, you know, that real passion. And I don't know, it some, sometimes kind of feels like that passion gets a bit muted with Spurs. I don't know if it's the surroundings, the setup of the club, or maybe the, the Conte feels like he's struggling under the weight of expectation. But it, I don't know, for me... It always felt like a bit of an awkward fit and it feels still like an awkward fit even what is it now a full year on a full calendar year i think it turned the other day i love that idea jonathan johnson as european football tinder i love it <laughs> of, of course you don't have to tweet us to get involved uh, you can email to show at footballramble.com as you have heard pete donaldson say so many times this one is from bryn via email now that marseille have dropped out of europe this year which french side do you think will go furthest in the Europa League? Ren, Nantes and Monaco could all be through the knockout rounds of the Europa League. Could any of them go deep into the tournament? That's a good question. Uh, my money would be on Ren. Uh, I've been impressed by the way that they've turned quite a slow start to the season, uh, you know, into a, a fairly decent amount of momentum now. I've been 
disappointed by the majority of uh, you know French clubs in the fact that they're making quite hard work of their Europa League groups. I really got my fingers crossed for Nantes because I was worried that Comboari had made the, the wrong decision to stay on at a club where you can't really get better than the domestic cup triumph as he as he enjoyed last season. Monaco, I really think that they should not be getting eliminated in their group. Fingers crossed that they don't. Obviously, we're recording this on a Thursday before the games get played. But if I had to put my money on one of the teams, I'd be choosing between Rennes and Monaco. But at this moment in time, I'm definitely putting my uh, my money on Bruno Genesio and uh, and his boys. You've got some fantastic players in really good form at the moment. Martin Terrier, uh, Lovro Meyer, who's one of my favourite players to watch in Ligue 1 at this moment in time. And one of the best away days, if you go to watch a match in uh, European football, uh, you know, Europa League or whatever, Definitely put Ren on your list of places to go because the food there is phenomenal. The Gellet Saucis, it's an absolute favourite of any French football journalist doing the rounds. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. Let's not go too early with the food recommendations. They're not at home this weekend. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as, as, as a Leon sympathiser, I'm sure going along to see uh, Bruno Genesio uh, doing his stuff, playing wonderful football. I mean, Guiri and uh, Martin Terrier hitting the heights. I won't feel any jealousy about that at all. <laughs> So it's less than three weeks until the World Cup. I was saying that to someone the other day. I was saying, it's still a while till the World Cup. World Cup. And they go, no, it's really not. It's less than three weeks until Doha. Um, Paris Saint-Germain um, are going to be heavily influencing that tournament, of, of course. We've got potentially career-defining tournaments for Neymar. There'll be so much pressure on him. Leo Messi, of course, they're both in great form Um in club football so far this season. Well, Kylian Mbappe, um, 23, going to turn 24 at the back end of the tournament, is going for a second straight World Cup. Extraordinary at his age. And at least two of these three are going to miss out. Have we ever seen anything like this in club football slash international football before, JJ? Because to me, everyone's always looking at the internal politics and the relational politics of the dressing room in Paris, and understandably so. Christophe Gautier said earlier in the season, we only spend 10% of my time in this press conference room actually talking about football. But the fact is, in terms of how they will be seen going forward, this is huge for the careers of Neymar and Messi. It's felt that the World Cup is the one to cap it all off. And as we say, two of these three who are going to, who are teammates who are going to be in fierce competition are going to go home very disappointed. It's an extraordinary situation, isn't it? It is. Um, I don't want to throw the word unprecedented out there, but it doesn't feel like there will have been too many examples of, uh, of this happening over the years. I don't know, perhaps uh, in, a, in an iteration of Manchester City sometime in the past, or maybe a Real Madrid or Barca, but other than that, uh, it's difficult to think of when uh, you know three teammates went into the World Cup as... Uh, you know, 
all playing for, for different countries who are considered favourites for the World Cup title. But uh, it, it is something that is definitely you know setting tongues wagging in France at the moment. There's a lot of pessimism surrounding France. There's a lot of optimism, uh, you know, that uh, you, you're going to see a winner coming from South America. But uh, I'm actually going to throw it to, to, to Nicky. You know, what uh, what what is the view of, of of Mbappe in particular, but also sort of this this Messi and Neymar, uh, you know, trio as well? Because it's obviously it's a a, a star alignment. But do people actually? you know, even pay that much attention to it when it's not in sort of under the Champions League uh, sort of umbrella, so to speak. I think, um, I mean, I think every country in the end can get quite brocal when, when it comes to football. Every country is is looking at its own backyard first most of the time. And the exception to that is usually then the next thing they're looking at is which of our sort of representatives are doing what abroad. So for instance, Conte, who we were talking about before, is a good example gets a reasonable amount of Italian media coverage because it's an Italian somewhere else doing something. But there's certainly lots of, I think at times Italian football has this habit of introspecting by talking about how much better things are everywhere else. And and clearly um, when it comes to Paris Saint-Germain, that, that trio is sort of, I think, perceived as the the sort of great combination that would once have happened in Italy, that would once have happened in, in a team like Milan or a team like Inter that could afford to throw the money around back in, again, the early 2000s and do that. Um, and so there's a certain amount of, oh, we're not as good as that and we'll never be as good as that again. Sometimes there's a sort of fatalistic talk that happens. Um, I think in general, there's, there's just curiosity as there is anywhere else at, at seeing that, that such a sort of talented group come together. I, I'm fascinated to see what the World Cup coverage is going to look like in Italy. I'm really fascinated to see what that's going to look like because last season, last time around, I think there was a certain amount of sort of melancholy about it and this feeling of, oh, the world's having a big party and we're not invited and and that's how it feels. I, I wonder if it'll be any different this time with the timing of the tournament being right in the middle of the season and, and so you can almost just continue to ignore it and focus on domestic concerns because football will be back sooner or whether there will be a different mood to it but I yeah I, I think it'll be a, an interesting another interesting sort of sociological moment if enough just a bit of a sad one as well for me personally who doesn't get to watch Italy play <laughs> let's go forward a little bit we all love a bit of the PSG psychodrama well apart from Christoph Gautier he doesn't like it too much because he would like to concentrate on the football a lot of people especially in South America have said it's fine seeing Neymar and Messi do their stuff now because they have a target. And they have been in unbelievable form. Both had great pre-seasons. Both look incredibly fit, incredibly motivated. What effect... I know this is all speculation at the moment, but this could be an extraordinary second half of the season. How do you think this maybe affects their Champions League contention in the... And they've they've got a great squad for it. There's no doubt about it. You know, they did a great transfer window, um, especially with the reinforcements they made in midfield. Where do you think this leaves the second half of this season? And are you as excited at seeing how these three gel together after two of them have had their dreams absolutely crushed at the World Cup in the second part of this campaign? Well, maybe maybe, maybe all three. Yeah. Maybe all three. Maybe all three. <laughs> Yeah, who knows? Um, could well be all three. Could well be that one of them comes back carrying an injury. I think that the dynamics of the second half of this season are so fascinating. I mean, I almost don't want to get too excited about thinking about it because the, on the first hand, I think it's a 
ridiculous and terrible idea to be having this World Cup where and when it's happening and and that's yeah. separate. But it's certainly intriguing um, because, you know, I was thinking about the other side of this earlier. Is it a massive benefit to Napoli, for instance, that Nigeria aren't going and so Victor Osserman's going to stay there with them for a few weeks and do more, um, have more time to work with Spalletti? Is that an advantage for them? And yes, is it a detriment to the teams like PSG who not only have players who are going, but who are going to be very likely involved in the latter stages? Because it's a big difference between if your players come home after the group stage and get a few weeks of training and recovery time, or if they come back having just played in the final and look, we're all starting up again and off we go. I think there's certainly a possibility that PSG get one of those players come back having just won the World Cup, having just been the star of the World Cup and and lifts the whole dressing room up with them. So I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's super fascinating. I wanted to go back to the PSG-ness of this question to, to, to finish, Jonathan. And if the World Cup is seen as the apex of QSI and PSG's global football power in that, you know, they will, they and PSG will own three of the biggest stars there in uh, Neymar, Mbappe and, and, and Messi. Where do they go next? I mean, do they continue with this star model? There's clearly a will to gradually move on from that at PSG, even if, you know, they've got Neymar, whether whether they want it or not, for, for, for the next little while because of his contractual situation. We'll see what happens with, with Messi. Obviously, there are myriad possibilities and Paris would quite like to extend him. But might they look to change their focus post-World Cup? Because clearly it's important for them to have their stars all in that stable before this huge event in, 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 in Qatar. But once football moves on from that. I mean, we've seen a little hint of that already, that they might, QSI might move a little bit closer to the Manchester City model, maybe diversify into a, like, a wider football group. We've seen them buy 20% of Braga, for example, in, in Portugal. Where do you see QSI going next with PSG and maybe in a wider football sense? I mean, it's really interesting that you ask that because I think there's a lot of possibilities with that as well. There is the possibility that you look at the facility that the QSI are building for PSG at the moment and that they start to basically, you know, create the sort of dream scenario that people have spoken about for years about how PSG could put an 11 on the pitch that's made through the youth academy based, uh, you know, out of the, the, the Paris talent basin, mm. uh, you know, that could actually compete to win the Champions League because you look at all that talent that's out there that's hailed from the Paris region and that, if you put it all together, that could make an extremely strong competitive team, uh, you know, in terms of a potential Champions League title. There is also the other possibility that, you know, QSI does look to sort of continue along this same vein, try and keep PSG as the most established club and then add a couple of new clubs sort of to their stable. There is another possibility entirely, and that's once the training facility becomes usable, certainly for the senior players. Uh, you know, the QSI actually cash in on PSG and either move elsewhere in football, uh, you know, or turn their attention to other things. I, I don't think that that's a possibility that's off the table. It's quite interesting that chairman and CEO Nasser Al-Halafi has suddenly been putting out these valuations of offers that uh, they've been turning down for the club in recent months. I don't think that that is, uh, you know, just by chance that he's done that. Uh, you know, I think they're keeping their options open. I wouldn't expect there to be any sort of, you know, solid movement on 
you know, PSG's future, you know, immediately after the World Cup. I think we're probably talking more 2024, 25, once the Olympic Games have passed through Paris as well. But, uh, you know, at this moment in time, I don't think that there's anything off the table. And it wouldn't surprise me, given the money that's being pumped into the, the, the state-of-the-art training facility, if they actually err towards sort of allowing those stars to either play out their time with the club or leave at some point for an acceptable offer uh, and bringing players through either via the academy or acquiring you know the, the hottest talents within the Paris region uh, and putting them all together to create a team to try to challenge for the Champions League. So you know how we roll here on OTC. Before we say à bientôt, we give you a game of the week to watch in this coming weekend and a food recommendation to go alongside it. We'll come to JJ in a minute. Nikki, show him how it's done. Well, it's, it's a double header in Serie A this weekend that's pretty exciting on Sunday. You've got the Rome derby followed by the Derby d'Italia. But I don't know if I can, in good faith, recommend to our listeners to watch a Juventus game at the moment. So let's go with the Rome derby, <laughs> which is um, Roma against Lazio. Um, certainly has not arrived at an ideal moment for Lazio, of course, with, Link- with Milinkovic Savic getting sent off last weekend and and Chile Mobile's fitness in doubt. They've also got their own Europa League game coming up tonight. So they are not going to be, well, Roma also playing in the Europa League. They're both playing in the Europa League tonight, to be fair. But um, certainly going to be a, a, a tricky game for Lazio, who had been playing very, very well. In fact, I think just last week, I recommended a Lazio game to watch on this uh, channel, on this um, podcast. So, um but yes, it's the Rome derby. It will be huge. They're both challenging for Champions League place at the moment. They've both been having sort of in different ways quite a compelling moment. Sarri Ball is back in its new new format at Lazio. Roma, of course, Jose Mourinho is always Jose. Yes, he's lost Paolo Dybala, but the team is still uh, competing in, in those European places. So it'll be a big derby. And my recommendation for the um, food this time I've just discovered uh, on socials, he's on TikTok, but he's on other platforms as well, a chef um, called Ruben Bondi, who does these amazing cooking videos um, from his balcony where he shouts to his neighbours and people passing by and says, what do you want me to to cook? He's a Roma fan, he's a a Roman, so his recipes are very traditional Roman. And he was cooking just the other day, pollo con pepperoni, which is literally just chicken with peppers, but it's like a stewed, traditional, sort of real... Um, peasant dish, I guess, peasant food, but really nice, um, hearty, wintry weather weather food as we get into November. So I think a nice polacone pepperoni would be the way I go for this weekend. Well, there's a lot to match there. Away you go, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, the bar has been set very high. I'm really, really tempted to give you a French shout. I mean, people who know me and follow me on uh, social media over the years will know that I do keep the island of Corsica very close to my heart, and I see a Jack Zero at home this weekend, so some wild bar boar stew would definitely be sort of on my list of recommendations if I was a sadist enough to watch a Jack Zero at this moment in time. So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to go closer to home, and coming from Solihull, so the Birmingham region, I know it's not that sexy, but... I would really love to be at Villa Park tucking into a, a, a chicken balti pie this weekend <laughs> watching Villa take on Manchester United in Unai Emery's first match in charge. So, I mean, yes, so from the one of the capitals of cuisine of Europe, I'm recommending you go all the way to dreary Birmingham to sit and watch Villa, hopefully, you know, show something against Manchester United under Unai Emery uh, because... 
it's very, very difficult to find anything that comes up to that sort of level of, you know, football ground scram um, over here in France. And unfortunately, Rennes aren't at home, so there's no Gellert Sossi's possible either. He subverted the form here by putting a Premier League <laughs> game in. But because of the Unai Emery angle, I suppose I have to keep my yellow card in my pocket. I'm going to go. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on on, on, on Sunday night, as Nicky was saying. Derby d'Italia, also Marseille versus Lyon, as they try to recover um, from that loss in the Champions League. But the one I'm going to go for, of course, it has to be El Gran Derby between uh, Betis and Sevilla. Betis absolutely flying at the moment. San Pauli back at Sevilla, not quite going as well as they'd want just. Yet, but the balance of power is really changing in the city. There'll be the atmosphere as normal. Obviously, it's going to be tapas that you're going to have to have to have with it. Um, but we're going to um, major, I think, on um, chorizo in red wine. Um, I think we, we definitely need some good quality bravas in there with the, the, the terracotta spicy sauce. And um, yeah, you know what? Even might fit some pimientos de padron and even a paella in there, though no chicken, of course, because it's not in Valencia. The Football Ramble is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.